0: Well, one of the shows that Brooke and I enjoy watching together is Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines, and uh, Brooke is there for the decorating. I'm there to see what zany things Chip will do next. And uh, if you haven't watched the show before, the plot of the show is that Chip and Joanna Gaines own a home renovation business, and they help clients uh, buy an old, dilapidated house that is truly a fixer-upper and update it and renovate it. Uh, Joanna is the designer, Chip is the lead contractor, and as the show progresses, you see them perform work on the house and get projects done, and uh, it all leads up to the, the reveal at the end of the show. They have this great reveal, and for the reveal, what they do to make it dramatic is they have the couple stand in the street in front of the house, looking in the direction of the house, but their view of the house is obstructed by this ginormous blown-up picture of the house that shows the house in its dilapidated state before any of the construction began. And so you see the exterior that's falling apart and the yard that's overgrown and the house has zero curb appeal. And then what happens is Chip and Joanna Gaines, they pull the picture back and the home, freshly renovated with an attractive exterior and a perfectly manicured lawn, and new landscaping is revealed, and it's this dramatic uh, uh, moment in the show. And I share that illustration with you because today we return to our study of the book of Ephesians, and we're going to come to a dramatic and climactic moment where the Holy Spirit rolls away an obstacle that's uh, obstructing our view, and He's going to reveal to us God the Father's grand renovation project for human history. We come to what I would call uh, today the great reveal in the book of Ephesians. So please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1 uh, verse 3. And while you're turning there, let me reorient you to where we are in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul opens up his letter to the Ephesian church with a greeting very similar to the way that he greets other churches. And if you've ever studied his letters to the churches, you know that after his greeting, he typically launches into explaining to them how he's praying for them. And there's a lot we can learn about how to pray for each other and how to pray for our church from the Apostle Paul. And certainly, he does that here in his letter to the Ephesians, but he doesn't do it right after his greeting. He does something very different. Instead, right after the greeting, he launches into this long sentence of doxology of praise to God for what God has done in His eternal plan of redemption. And this sentence, it's one sentence in ancient Greek, it runs from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. And uh, the and you can break this impossibly long sentence into three stanzas. Uh, it has three stanzas, and in each stanza the unique role that one member of the Trinity played in the grand plan of salvation uh, is discussed by Paul. So, the first stanza is all about the role that God the Father played. The second stanza is about the role of God the Son. The third stanza is about the Holy Spirit. And each of the stanzas ends with the phrase, "'To the praise of His glory.'" Uh, And we're going to study the second stanza today. That's actually where we left off before. uh, Last time we were in Ephesians was March. And the reason for that is because we took a break from Ephesians uh, for the Passion Week and for considering the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, But now we're back in Ephesians, and we're back in the second stanza about the role of the Son And uh, the role of the Son is verses 7 through 12, but I want to back up all the way to verse 3, uh, and let's read from verse 3 through verse 12 today uh, to set our minds on what Paul has to say to us. Ephesians 1, 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him.'" In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He lavished freely, excuse me, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word to the Ephesians, of course, and now also to us. Let's pray. Father, as we now try to grasp this lavishing of knowledge in wisdom and insight that You've blessed us with through Your Word, please help us to understand it. Please help us to grasp this wisdom and this insight. And as we attempt this, please make the riches of Your grace abound to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ.'" And the reason I wanted to start back in verse 3 is because what Paul does in this long sentence is he enumerates the blessings we've received in the heavenly places in Christ, and there's more than one blessing. For instance, he starts verse 4, those of us who've come to repentance and faith in Jesus were actually chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and we were chosen not just to be pardoned from our sins, but also to become holy and blameless. That's verse 4. In love, God the Father adopted us into His family as sons and daughters according to uh, His good pleasure. He chose us because He wanted to choose us, verse 5. Through God the Son's shed blood on the cross, we have a redemption that has paid the price of our trespasses, verse 7. And the blessings Paul enumerates are going to continue this morning. Now, we actually began looking at the role of the Son Uh, in verses 7 through 12 back in March before taking a break for the Passion Week. And last time we were together in in Ephesians, we looked at uh, the first blessing we received through the Son. I preached a whole sermon on the blessing of the redemption we've received through Christ's sacrifice, and so I don't want to re-preach that here. But by way of review, let me say that in the Greco-Roman world, redemption communicated being released or freed from a terrible predicament by the payment that another person made on your behalf. Uh, Greek speakers used this word for redemption to speak of a prisoner of war or a hostage who had their freedom purchased by another. But more than anything else in the Greek language, they used the word redemption to speak of being uh, uh, purchased from slavery, freed from slavery by the purchase of another. And I want to highlight that for you because there is a disconnect between this New Testament word, redemption, and the way that redemption is used in the English language, especially in popular culture and art. Let me give you an illustration. The Krupp family is currently watching season three of The Mandalorian, so if you're intending to watch The Mandalorian, this is a spoiler alert. Uh, and, but don't worry, if you haven't watched it yet, you, you'll figure this out Uh, as the show is going. It's pretty obvious if you're watching the show, but I'll I'll try to keep the details to a minimum. Uh, In a previous season, the Mandalorian commits a particular trespass of the Mandalorian creed. He needs to be redeemed, and so in season three, spoiler alert, he goes to a certain place, he performs a certain ritual, and when he comes back uh, to the Mandalorian group that he's living with, uh, to the clan he's with, the mother superior of the clan, if you will, says you are redeemed. And in context, it's clear that the Mandalorian made the choice to be redeemed. He went on the quest. He went on the journey. He performed the ritual. He redeemed himself. And that whole idea of self-redemption, self-atonement, self-salvation, plays really well with human nature. We like that idea. We like the idea of if we need to be saved at all, we like the idea of saving ourself, self-atonement, self-redemption. But that is not what's going on in the New Testament or the way Paul is using the word redemption here in verse 7. Jesus had to pay the price for our redemption, and He paid it in His body on the cross by shedding His own blood and giving up His own life for us. Pastor Tim Keller explains it this way, false religion says, earn your life. Secular society says, create your life. Jesus says, my life for your life. Through Christ, we've received the blessing of redemption from our trespasses. But today, we now come to the next blessing we've received through Christ. Uh, It's in verses 7 through 9. Let's look at them again. In Him, which is referring back to verse 6, and the beloved Son of the Father, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. Now, I want to begin by confessing there is an interpretive controversy here in verse 8. Uh, As I said before, uh, in ancient Greek, verses 3 through 14 are all one long sentence. The Greeks wrote in much longer sentences than we do, and you know that if you read any of Plato or Aristotle or even Josephus. I was reading Josephus the other week, and I was like, use a period, please, use a comma. I'm like half a page down. I don't even remember what the clause that started this sentence was now. Just please, they wrote in longer sentences than we do. And so, our translators are forced to try and put periods and punctuation in that would help an English-speaking audience better understand what Paul is saying. And here's the big controversy. The big controversy is whether or not there should be a period after the word us in verse 8. And what that strikes to the heart of is this question, is this wisdom and insight that Paul's speaking of, is it God's wisdom and insight in revealing to us what He's revealed to us? Or is this wisdom and insight a blessing that He has given those who believe in Him by His grace so that we can understand the mystery of His will? I actually believe it's the latter, and I believe for an English-speaking audience, if you want to put a period in, the period would go best uh, at the end of verse 10. And the reason I believe that is because if you read past verse 8 into verses 9 and 10, what you find is this wisdom is a wisdom that helps us know the mystery of God's will. Later on in verse 17, Paul prays that God will give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. So, I think because of what follows, it makes sense uh, that the wisdom and insight spoken of in verse 8 are a wisdom and insight that God gives as a blessing to His people through Christ. And that's actually the way other translations… I'm preaching to you from the New American Standard uh, version today. Uh, Other translations like the ESV and the NIV and the King James, uh, they they see it as… they see this wisdom as a blessing. They put the period uh, later on in verse 10, as I was saying before. And so, then the second blessing we receive through the Son's work is the gift of wisdom. And there are three things about this wisdom I want you to see from the text today. First of all, this wisdom is a gift of God's grace. If you back up into verse 7, it is according to the riches of God's grace that He lavished this wisdom and insight upon us. And so, we need to just stop there and say, it is a lavish grace to know the mystery of God's secret will. Now, uh, we know god 's secret will only to the extent that he 's revealed it to us in Scripture, and so we need to clarify this gift of wisdom and insight it does not make Christians godlike in our knowledge, and it it also means we don't know God's secret will for all things exhaustively, but we do know a very important part of His secret will that He wanted to reveal to us. And it's important when we talk about God's secret will to understand this. God's secret will is not something we can discover on our own through observation or research. If we're going to understand it, He has to speak and reveal it to us. And when you unwrap the gift, uh, the gifts of this wisdom and insight He's given us, they are simply marvelous. The word Paul uses for wisdom here has to do with the big questions of life. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there any purpose or meaning to the cosmos or to our lives and why we were created? Is there a destination that history is headed towards? This Greek word for wisdom here is a word that's all about answering the big questions of life so that we can be oriented to the reality that we live in. But the other word Paul uses here is insight, and in Greek this word for insight has to do with practical insight into dealing with the day-to-day problems of life. William Barclay explains it this way, Christ gives to men the ability to see the great ultimate truths of eternity and also to solve the problems of each moment in time. In other words, Christ helps us solve the, the problem of being as well as the problems of living. In Christ, we've been given both wisdom and insight. And I actually think Ephesians is a great illustration of these two things because in chapters 1 through 3, you see the wisdom of God's great eternal plan and where history is headed. But in chapters 4 through 6, what do you get? You get very practical insight into the nitty-gritty everyday problems of life that Christians face on our heavenly journey. And in Christ, we've been given both. Through Christ, God has lavished on us all kinds of wisdom and all kinds of insight. And not only is this wisdom a gift of God's grace, it's also essential for our spiritual growth. You see, our trespasses and sins have not only put us in a position where we need to be redeemed from the addictive power of our sins and from the eternal penalty of our sins at the final judgment, there's even more. our our sins and trespasses in some way, shape, or form reduce each one of us to spiritual fools. And so, our spiritual rehabilitation isn't just a rehabilitation where we grow in holiness and in righteousness, it also includes learning the wisdom of God and living in light of His insights as a Creator. In fact, even before mankind fell into sin, Adam needed God to come and speak to him in the garden, even in his unfallen state. Adam, as a finite creature, was not able to look at the cosmos, observe a whole bunch of things, and then taking the details that he observed, reason his way up to meaning and purpose in life and knowing where the future was headed. He needed God to speak. This is why Moses says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There are things about the the fabric of reality that we can't discover on our own, and we need God to speak. So, we need this wisdom, and this wisdom and insight He gives us, uh, they are both essential to our spiritual growth. But to understand that, you have to understand what the New Testament and the Bible says about the mind. According to the Bible, you are an embodied soul. So, there is uh, an immaterial Uh, spiritual, eternal part of you that we would call the soul, and then you have a physical organ uh, of cognition and thinking called the brain, and where the brain and the soul interact, you have the metaphysical reality of the mind. And in the Bible, the mind is the part of you that evaluates and plans and deliberates, but there's more. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that they used for the mind could also legitimately be translated heart because for the Hebrews, they didn't separate cognition and thinking from passions and desires and loves and hates and cravings. It was all happening in this one entity that as an English speaker we might call the heart-mind. Uh, And that was the reality in the Old Testament. And the Bible has a lot to say about the heart-mind. Turn over, for example, to Ephesians 4, verse 17. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul gives some insight uh, into how essential the transformation of our minds is to our Christian growth. He says, uh, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as The Gentiles also walk, and he's not using Gentile there ethnically. He means people who reject Jesus. Don't walk as those who reject Jesus. In the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with desires of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." This is one of those classic New Testament passages on sanctification, and in it there's three steps. We're supposed to put off the old self uh, with its sinful and deceitful desires, which is being corrupted, and we're supposed to… the third step is to put on the new self in Christ, but notice in the middle step… What informs how we do the other two steps? What informs how we do them is being renewed in the spirit of your mind. How does that happen? Well, that happens by learning the wisdom and insight of God through Christ in Scripture. Uh, now turn over to Romans 12. I want to show you one more place where we, we have this thought about the mind in Paul's writing. Uh, and I'll set this up before I read it, what's happening in Paul's letter to the church in Rome is he spends 11 chapters talking about the gospel and its implications, 11 chapters, if you will, on the wisdom of God. But now in chapter 12, he's going to apply the gospel to daily living, and he's going to give, if you will, the insights of God, And listen to what he says in uh, Romans 12, verses 1, and we'll we'll read partway through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. I have a marginal note in my translation That tells me that in the Greek, the word that's used for world here could also legitimately be translated age. Do not be conformed to the spirit of the age that you live in. Don't let the mindset and values of the particular time and the particular place and the particular culture you live in conform you to its mold. Do you know how many of our youth I'm afraid of losing to Baal worship? Uh, None of them. Nobody does Baal worship anymore. That's not the spirit of the age. What's the spirit of the age we live in? Well, I am afraid of losing our youth to a philosophy of life that says you are what you feel and that grants uh, uh, unlimited authority for defining all of reality to the inner self. I'm afraid of the secular spirit of our age where we say there is no God to redeem us. We must redeem ourselves. Uh, I'm afraid of that sense of self-salvation and uh, humanity creating its own utopia coupled with the teaching that what freedom really means is that you should be free to live however you want to, regardless of the consequences. Uh, I'm afraid of losing them to that, because it plays well to human nature and the natural desires of the human heart. But I'm not just afraid of losing them. I'm afraid for us who are already adults. I'm afraid that that way of thinking has already actually influenced us and conformed us to its mold more than we would realize. And the answer to that concern and danger then is this, Romans 12.2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, this is what growth in godliness looks like. We increasingly have thoughts and desires and passions that are transformed by the renewing of our minds uh, that the wisdom and insight of God gives us. Under the Old Covenant, the greatest commandment given through Moses was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But in the New Testament, someone quoted Moses but added to Scripture, added to what Moses said. Uh, someone in the New Testament claimed that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Who added mind? Who is it that's adding to Moses' words? Answer: It's Jesus himself. By his own authority, Jesus is adding that we need, clarifying, really, that we need to love God with our minds. So understand that God's work in your mind is not a peripheral issue in your spiritual growth. It's central to your growth. And to be balanced about this, uh, is it possible for you to grow in biblical knowledge but not grow spiritually? Yes. Yes, it's possible for us to grow in knowledge but not apply and live out and be doers of what we've learned. That's a spiritual danger that every single one of us in this room faces. But consider for a moment the opposite danger… Is it possible to grow without biblical knowledge? Well, no, because the biblical knowledge, it provides a foundation upon which uh, we grow spiritually. And so, the wisdom we've been given by God through Christ, it's a gracious gift, but it's also a gift we need to value because it's essential to our spiritual growth. And then the third truth about this gift I want you to see is that uh, this gift includes knowledge of God's great eternal plan Uh, Actually, let me edit that. It includes knowledge of God's great plan for human history. Look again at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will. Um, We all love a good mystery, right? And when I see that word mystery in the New Testament, I think of Sherlock Holmes, or I think of when I was a boy watching Murder, She Wrote, with my mom and thinking that Cabot Cove must be the murder capital of the world to have so many murders that Angela Lansbury needs to figure out, uh, right? But unfortunately, I think this word mystery, it obscures what Paul is saying. The Greek word that we translate mystery is actually a very common New Testament word. It's a very common word in secular Greek, and in secular Greek, it's used most often as, uh, to mean something that is a secret. So, let's read verse 9 again, substituting secret as an alternate translation instead of mystery. He made known to us the secret of His will. In other words, through Christ, God has made known to us part of His secret will, not His secret will for all things for all times but a very important part of His secret will. And again, we can't know His secret will just by our own observation or research. He has to reveal it to us. He has to speak to us. And notice the gift of revelation, uh, the, the spirit in which this gift of God revealing His secret to us has been given. It is according to His kind intention. It was according to His good pleasure that He wanted us to know what was previously a secret. In fact, I would sum up verses 9 through 11 this way It brought great delight to God to make known to us His greatest secret for human history. So, this then, beloved, brings us to the great reveal. The Father is standing in front of a big picture of this broken world, uh, a world that is. Uh, cursed by sin that has no curb appeal, and now He's going to pull that away and show us His great secret. What is the secret? Look at the beginning of verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Isn't that great? Cleared up. Does everybody get the, the secret now? Well, I don't understand it either. So, let's, let's work through this, and, and we need to say this before we work through it. I believe that when Paul wrote this to the Ephesians, he pro- for them, in their language, he probably wrote in a way that was straightforward, that was easy to understand. But this is the one clause of uh, this section of Ephesians 1 that is the most awkward and difficult to bring into the English language. I was studying it this week, and I was not envious of our translators. I have no way to, to translate it better. It's really difficult and awkward, but let's work through it uh, slowly and patiently, and I think it will yield good results to us. First of all, the word administration, it simply means a stewardship or a management position. In secular Greek, it was often used uh, to manage a household or to manage a large estate. In political discourse, it was used uh, to speak of the leadership of a governor over a uh, province or even the way that a king administrated and led the nation during his reign. So, the closest equivalent we might have would be to speak of the way that we speak of presidential administrations, right? The the Biden administration, the Trump administration. So, the picture here then is of God as the chief administrator of the cosmos, and through careful administration, He is managing the times, Now, the word times here is not the Greek word kronos, which means a succession of time. Uh, It's a a Greek word that has no English equivalent. It's keros. Uh, It appears 67 times in the New Testament. And it doesn't just mean time. It means an opportune time, a season of opportunity, or at the right time, or the proper time, or the fitting time. Uh, We might talk about a harvest season right? Harvest is this period of time where for that particular kind of tree or for that crop, uh, it's an opportune time because the fruit is ripe for you to harvest it. That's the idea. So, it's not just time, but it's a fitting, appropriate, proper uh, season of time, a season of time ripe with opportunity. Uh, And I think that we can relate to this because… You know, I love history. I love reading books on history. Brooke and I like watching historical documentaries. And what do we do in the study of history? Typically, we like to break up history into ages or seasons or epics of time, and we can speak to each other about the Renaissance or the Industrial Revolution. Well, in the mind of God, there is a sequential order to human history. There is an order of seasons and ages that will culminate at the proper time in the crowning age of human history. What is that golden age that God is administrating human history towards? Middle of verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now, this idea of summing up, it is so rich and I would be doing uh, spiritual malpractice if I didn't explain what summing up means in Greek. First of all, to sum up was an expression used in Greek for the summation of an argument or a speech. God's plan is to make the Son whom He loves the goal and end of all history. He is in the process of making Jesus the logic by which all of human history can be summed up in the end, by by which it can be one day summarized, if you will. Uh, second, the second idea of to sum up was used of the idea of to head up, to head up in terms of a leadership position, to have authority over. So, the Father is administrating human history towards a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, And, and in that day He will reign over all things and all people as the Lord over all lords and the King over all kings. And then third, to sum up, was used in the Greek world to speak of renewing and restoring. When Christ reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, He will renew and restore the created world. You think about even in the millennial kingdom, what will happen in the millennial kingdom where we, we see that Christ will reign, and we see from the evidence that you can find in Isaiah and in Daniel and in Zechariah and in the book of Revelation, we see that many of the effects of the curse of sin will be reversed by the Lord Jesus. Uh, So, this then is the great reveal. History is not a cyclical pattern where the same kinds of events and ideas repeat themselves over and over again like the wheel of Dharma or like Eastern religions would have us believe. No, 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 no. Human history has a beginning, a middle, and an end that then launches into a happy eternity, and it's summed up by Christ. Uh, and, And even though it may look to us Uh, Those of us who have to live on the ground in the middle of that history, even though that history may look chaotic and random to us, there actually is someone who is in charge of this unfolding plan, and He is guiding human history so that at the best, most fitting time, the Son of His love will summarize human history and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords and renew all of creation. Through Christ uh, and the apostles He appointed and the Holy Spirit who moved them to write Scripture, God has now revealed to us how the story of human history will culminate and then launch into eternity future. So, what does this secret plan that God has now revealed to us, what does it mean for us? What are some implications for us now that we've seen the reveal and we understand it? How should it transform us? Well, there's a lot that we could say. Uh, Let me limit myself to three applications. First of all, I believe God has told us about how the end will unfold for our comfort and encouragement. Now, I know I've used this illustration before, like an old pastor who likes to tell the same jokes over and over again, but humor me, okay? Uh, last year, my, growing up, my favorite sport was football. And last year, my son came to me and asked me, Daddy, can we watch the NFL this year? And so, I invested in NFL Plus because they archive the games. And not only do they archive all the games if you can't watch them live, they have condensed games where they take out all the commercials and a bunch of time in between plays. You can watch a whole game in 45 minutes. It's great. Well, anyway, having the archived games, it did something remarkable to me. It spoiled me as a fan uh, you know, just because of my calling in life, the stage our family is in, we have teenagers, I don't have time to sit down and watch a three-and-a-half-hour football game once a week, even though I'd like to. I don't have that kind of time on my hands. And, and, and so, I started doing something I'm not very proud of. Uh, I'm a Seahawk fan. I started only watching the Archive games that I knew ahead of time they won. Uh, I, I didn't want to spend time watching them lose. I, I didn't have the emotional energy for that uh, or the time for it. And, and this very interesting transformation happened within my own home. You see, my daughters have shared with me that they can be upstairs playing in their room with the door closed, and they can always tell when Daddy is downstairs watching a live football game because I'll yell at the TV. I'm not proud of that, but I guess I don't do that with baseball, I don't think, or basketball. Anyway, uh, but when I would watch the archived games, things would happen that would tend to make me angry. The Seahawks fumbling the football, the ref making a bad call, but I didn't yell. I didn't throw a pillow at the TV. I kept my cool because I knew that in the end, we would still win. I can handle it, right? Well, I think there's something very similar happening here with God revealing His plan for human history. And here's here's why I say this. Let's just be honest. We, We need to have an adult conversation about this. There are a lot of spiritual defeats that you and I still have to face in this life. There are defeats our church will probably have to face. There are defeats that Christianity will face in our lifetime. And when we experience those defeats, we don't have to despair because we know the Lord Jesus will win in the end, and the church with Him, and He will take us to be with Him. But as is uh, is true with so many of the comforts and encouragements in Scripture, there actually is baked into this comfort, I think, an implicit challenge, an implicit exhortation, and it's this. Now that we know the end, the question is if we'll get on board with God's program. Now that we know the end, the question is if we will live for His revealed agenda or keep living for our own. Does Christ sum up the life you're living now? Or are you a faint shadow of what God created you to be, a shadow who's still enslaved to your own sin and gratifying all your own desires and living for yourself? Or have you been restored and reconciled to God through Christ? Have you bowed the knee to Him as Lord? Is living for Him to the best of your ability… The logic that sums up a lot of the decisions that you're making in life. You and I have only one life to invest for the kingdom of God. We only have one life to invest before our part in the story of human history comes to an end. And God holds us accountable for how we spend our time. And one of the best ways I believe that we can serve Him with the time we have left is loving Him with our mind. It's by the renewing of our minds and the study and application of Scripture that we'll be purified and and begin to catch a vision for how we could serve Him best in our generation with our unique gifts and abilities. Over in Ephesians 3, I think Paul is speaking about this. He says, uh, he's talking more in Ephesians 3 about uh, the secret will of God that God had delegated to him as an apostle to reveal to the Gentiles, and just listen to what he says at the beginning of Ephesians 3. It it feels a little bit wordy to an English audience, but listen, listen to what he says and how he ends the first couple of verses. "'For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles,' If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the secret, as I wrote you in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the secret of Christ. When you read, God gave us a book, not a DVD. He didn't give us a movie. He didn't give us a miniseries called The Chosen, which tries to fill in backstory that God never revealed to us, He gave us a book. And the amazing thing about this book is that it's unlike any other book in the world. We know that it is a book that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. We know that it's a book that has an uncanny way of judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it doesn't judge our thoughts and intentions to destroy us, it judges them to renew us and transform us and to save us from our foolishness, to save us from dying clinging to the idols that are going to destroy us. So, yes. God's Word does judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, but it judges our thoughts and intentions for our reclamation, for our salvation, for our renewal and restoration and joy. God's Word has a way of washing us, of cleansing us, of transforming us and renewing us. In it, we have been given all the wisdom and insight we need, and now it's up to us to choose whether we're going to love God with our minds by studying it, taking it to heart, and being doers of it. Let's pray.